You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God, and not profane the name of their God. For they offer Yahweh's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, Yahweh, who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. He shall not go in to any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am Yahweh. And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman, or a woman who has been defiled, or a prostitute. These he shall not marry, but he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people, For I am Yahweh who sanctifies him. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring, throughout their generations, who has a blemish, may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face, or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot, or an injured hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest, who has a blemish, shall come near to offer Yahweh's food offerings, since he has a blemish. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar, because he has a blemish, that he may not profane my sanctuaries. For I am Yahweh, 
who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 611. That was Leviticus chapter 21, talking about holiness and the priests. And some of what God says here, and remember, this is God speaking. This isn't Moses. This isn't somebody else just reading between the lines or putting things into the text. This is God speaking. Some of the things that God says are no-goes in terms of his priests, what they can't have in the way of physical defects. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, I I think it's somewhat jarring for me. And that's not to find fault with God at all. I'm just trying to say, okay, if I would embrace God's character as revealed in his word in this passage and understand that there's something about his nature and his purpose and his holiness that is actually expressed in our observing that you don't have somebody with these physical defects coming and ministering as a priest in all of the ways that they might otherwise. How do I reckon that I'm supposed to feel instead of the uneasy feeling, the recoiling of sorts? that I honestly want to engage in a little bit here. You know, some of these defects, you might say, well, how is anybody going to know? God knows. And the person who is ministering knows. They know that they have these defects. And that's all that is necessary for there to be an unholiness here. Is this because... There's something inherently unholy about having these physical defects. Is there a spiritual significance to them? On the one hand, the answer seems like it has to be no. It's not a sin to have some kind of a birth defect. You know, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind, the Pharisees asked Jesus in the Gospels. And Jesus answers, neither. So it's not as though there's a sin that necessarily is unrepented of in the life of the person with a physical defect. Dwarfism, for instance. Nobody chooses to be a dwarf if they were born with certain genes pertaining to growth and development and maturation being mutated. That's not a choice. That's a characteristic that is beyond their scope to effect. But then again, If we think more broadly and we say that sin in the world, this being a broken creation, sin in our ancestry as human beings breaks the code, if you will. It breaks the genetic code and leads to a loss of genetic information here and there over time. And then that loss of genetic information over time leads to these kinds of birth defects, then perhaps possibly we start to wrap our minds around what God is saying here. And also too, might I just speculate, and this is speculative, take it with a grain of salt. It's not a hill I would die on, but 
it's just what comes to mind, so I'll share it with you. Could this perhaps be a clue to the kind of holistic restoration we will enjoy with our resurrected bodies? For those of us in Christ, will we find that certain birth defects, certain genetic conditions that we had no control over, no say over, we were just born with these things, will we find that those are healed and made whole and that God will make us as we should have been in the beginning? I I would say yes. I, I would say that this passage, to my mind, strongly suggests such. Not just this passage, but this passage among others. But actually on this point, with regards to the resurrected body, I was having a conversation with my friend and pastor, Paul Pavlik, one of our pastors at Summit View Community Church here in Greeley, Evans, Colorado, on Wednesday night after youth group. And one of the touch points in our extended conversation was George McDonald, one of the influences on C.S. Lewis, a very big influence on Clive Staple Lewis, was a certain George McDonald, author of The Princess and the Goblin, among other works. And actually, C.S. Lewis wrote a whole book about George MacDonald titled, if you can believe it, George MacDonald. But I didn't know really much at all to speak of about George MacDonald, aside from having read The Princess and the Goblin, which I loved. It's a great book. It's a great little novel, a little fantasy novel for children. And I thought, when I had heard in the past that George MacDonald was a big influence on C.S. Lewis, I thought, oh, well, you know, probably in the fiction writing right? Well, it turns out, according to Paul, George MacDonald had some, shall we say, odd theology at best. And I didn't know anything of it. And we didn't go into a lot of depth Wednesday night when Paul and I were chatting. But I thought when I got home, I want to do a little bit of research and just see what did he believe? What was his weird theology? And actually, Wikipedia gives me the beginnings of an answer, enough of an answer to appreciate what Paul is getting at. Under the theology heading, Wikipedia reads, according to biographer William Reaper, McDonald's theology celebrated the rediscovery of God as father and sought to encourage an intuitive response to God and Christ through quickening his readers' spirits in their reading of the Bible and their perception of nature. McDonald's oft-mentioned universalism is not the idea that everyone will be automatically saved, but is closer to Gregory of Nyssa in the view that all will ultimately repent and be restored to God. McDonald appears to have never felt comfortable with some aspects of Calvinist doctrine, feeling that its principles were inherently unfair when the doctrine of predestination was first explained to him. He burst into tears, although assured that he was one of the elect. Later novels, such as Robert Falconer and Lilith, show a distaste for the idea that God's electing love is limited to some and denied to others. Chesterton noted that only a man who had escaped Calvinism could say that God is easy to please and hard to satisfy. MacDonald rejected the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement as developed by John Calvin, which argues that Christ has taken the place of sinners and is punished by the wrath of God in their place, believing that in turn it raised serious questions about the character and nature of God. Instead, he taught that Christ had come to save people from their sins and not from 
a divine penalty for their sins. The problem was not the need to appease a wrathful God, but the disease of cosmic evil itself. MacDonald frequently described the atonement in terms similar to the Christus Victor theory. MacDonald posed the rhetorical question. Did he not foil and slay evil by letting all the waves and billows of its horrid sea break upon him, go over him, and die without rebound, spend their rage, fall defeated, and cease? Verily, he made atonement. MacDonald was convinced that God does not punish except to amend, and that the sole end of his greatest anger is the amelioration of the guilty. As the doctor uses fire and steel in certain deep-seated diseases, so God may use hellfire if necessary to heal the hardened sinner." MacDonald declared, quote, I believe that no hell will be lacking, which would help the just mercy of God to redeem his children, end quote. MacDonald posed the rhetorical question, quote, when we say that God is love, do we teach men that their fear of him is groundless? He replied, quote, no, as much as they were, will come upon them, possibly far more, the wrath will consume what they call themselves so that the selves God made shall appear, end quote. Now, just to be very clear, I know some people who would, from what I understand of their theology, agree with this view that MacDonald held, according to Wikipedia, and I disagree with those friends of mine. Love them, though I do, and I disagree with George MacDonald. Love The Princess and the Goblin, though I do. It's a delightful book. I disagree with this idea of hell being a kind of purgatory where our sinfulness is just being purged, and then ultimately we will repent and come to faith in Christ and then escape hell, though initially thrown there, put there. I disagree with that, and I don't believe that is what the Bible teaches at all. And MacDonald was mistaken on this point. We don't come to the biblical text with a preconceived notion of God's kindness, fairness, goodness, justice, what we believe would be correct for God to do, and then read that into the text. Not if we want to have good theology, not if we want to have a good grasp of who God is and what he has called us to. We come to the text and we might have certain uncomfortabilities, certain assumptions, certain desires, ambitions, certain proclivities. And if we are wise we let God's word transform us instead of us trying to transform his word to what we believe would be right. We're not in the business of reforming God. God is in the business of reforming us, transforming us by the renewing of our minds in Christ Jesus. So with respect, I mean no rudeness to my friends or George MacDonald or anyone else that holds to this, but this is mistaken clearly. And the Bible makes that clear. That's where we get the idea from. I'm not reading that into the text. And it's not even necessarily that I want that to be the case, but God is holy and righteous. And the penalty for sin, apart from faith in Christ in this life, is eternal damnation, death in the lake of fire forever. But moving on, speaking of authors and books, My last episode, my previous episode to this one, is subscriber only until the end of May. Come June 1st, you'll be able to listen to it if you wait that long. But if you don't want to wait, if you want to listen to my review of To Kill a Mockingbird, you can subscribe for 99 cents a month. That's all it costs. And you'll be able to 
here every third episode when it's published, the day that it's published, and not have to wait a month at a time. Also, the recap episodes, 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, and 600, those are subscriber only. So if you want to check those out and hear my recaps, the highlights and lowlights of my podcasting over the years, you'll have to subscribe for 99 cents a month. It's not going to break the bank. It's really not. And it's cheaper and cheaper every day with inflation ticking higher. Come on, man, as Joe Biden would say. To kill a mockingbird, though, I want to draw your attention briefly. I'm not going to re-review or review my review. You can go back and listen to the previous episode for that. But I do want to draw your attention to something that I didn't talk about in that episode. And that is Harper Lee, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird. Goodreads.com in the bio for her says she was known as Nell and was born in the Alabama town of Monroeville, the youngest of four children of Amasa Coleman Lee and Francis Cunningham Finch Lee. Her father, a former newspaper editor and proprietor, was a lawyer who served on the state legislature from 1926 to 1938 as a child Lee was a tomboy and a precocious reader and enjoyed the friendship of her schoolmate and neighbor, the young Truman Capote. After graduating from high school in Monroeville, Lee enrolled at the all-female Huntingdon College in Montgomery, 1944 to 1945, and then pursued a law degree at the University of Alabama, 1945 to 1950, pledging the Chi Omega sorority. While there, she wrote for several student publications and spent a year as editor of the campus humor magazine, Ramajama. Though she did not complete the law degree, she studied for a summer in Oxford, England, before moving to New York in 1950, where she worked as a reservation clerk with Eastern Airlines and BOAC. Lee continued as a reservation clerk until the late 1950s, when she devoted herself to writing. She lived a frugal life, traveling between her cold water-only apartment in New York to her family home in Alabama to care for her father, having written several long stories Harper Lee located an agent in November 1956. The following month, at the East 50th townhouse of her friends Michael Brown and Joy Williams Brown, she received a gift of a year's wages with a note. Quote, you have one year off from your job to write whatever you please. Merry Christmas, end quote. Within a year, she had a first draft working with J.B. Lippincott and co. Editor Tay Hohoff. She completed To Kill a Mockingbird in the summer of 1959. Published July 11, 1960, the novel was an immediate bestseller and won great critical acclaim, including the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1961. It remains a bestseller with more than 30 million copies in print. In 1999, it was voted Best Novel of the Century in a poll by the Library Journal. And that is that is a distinction that I would say is very well-deserved. I realize that was 24 years ago, and things have changed greatly since there have been calls to cancel To Kill a Mockingbird. And actually, as a matter of fact, if I scroll down on Goodreads and I see the first review of this book featured by somebody I don't know named Lanes, she gives it a one-star out of five. And she writes a lengthy review. 
I'm not going to go into it all here, but her problem with Harper Lee is that Harper Lee is white. And her problem with To Kill a Mockingbird is that it's a book about white people and even Atticus Finch being a white knight riding to the rescue of, as she sees it, a whole bunch of black folk who are just props as far as Harper Lee is concerned. In other words, this book is horrible, awful, no good, rotten, because it's written by people who are white, about people who are white, to people who are white, for people who are white, and was praised and lauded and celebrated for the last 60 years, primarily by people who are white, because white supremacy, because racism. And this is where I say the folks who are the wokes can't be pleased and they have seared consciences. Everything is class. Everything is collectivist. It's tragic for their case that they can't see anything good or true or beautiful. They just want the revolution. And many of them have been taken captive in their thinking. They've been brainwashed. And we should pity them. We should pray for them. Actually, much the same as we should pity and pray for the prejudiced people in To Kill a Mockingbird. Those people should be pitied. These people should be pitied. They know not what they do. They are parroting what they have been fed for their entire education, their entire lives to this point, uncritically condemning all of human history to this point, and thereby absolving themselves as they see it. The issue is not the issue. The issue is always the revolution. And I, for one, am going to keep on criticizing their hypercritical, perfectionistic utopianism, because it always ends in the same scheme to bring about communism, and therefore to make us more satanic. This is not of God. Now you can critique, by all means, you can critique books and say, well, I think this was a rather limited perspective and you know, maybe there's some things that we're missing. But when it's never good enough, just because the author was white and the audience was white and the lead characters in the book were white, if it's never good enough, then you are a racist. Actually, you are prejudiced and that's an injustice. And it needs to be opposed as unjust and evil and corrupt and corrupting for all the same reasons that Atticus Finch defended Tom Robinson in To Kill a Mockingbird. But moving on, some more great literature talk. Timothy Chalamet rides a sandworm, Austin Butler, a bald psycho in first Dune 2 trailer, USA Today, story by Brian Truitt highlights the first look at the sequel to Dune as conceived of by Denis Villeneuve, French-Canadian director. I'm not going to play the trailer for you. It's going to be lost on you. I mean, it sounds great, but it's primarily visually driven. And what would be the point? I won't do that to you, but do look it up because it's, it's pretty cool. Frank Herbert's book, Dune, the first one I read back in high school and very much enjoyed it. And it's very political 
and it's very psychological and it's very original. And the latest adaptation for the big screen, the very first one that I've really ever watched, but not the very first one that's been made, was highly entertaining, very well done, very well shot and choreographed, and the costumes were on point. The cinematography was on point. The music and the sound quality and the visuals. Oh, it was just, it was a gorgeous, gorgeous movie. The trailer for the sequel looks fantastic. I'm super excited about it. It's a work of art. It really is. And a fitting tribute. This is how books should be made into movies, in my opinion. Not to say you can't adjust anything, you can't tweak anything, or else the fans are going to just lose their minds. But this is how to adapt a beloved book for the big screen. Don't do what Amazon has done with The Wheel of Time and Tolkien's work. Don't do that. Do something like this, please, movie makers, TV show producers and directors. Don't do what Disney has done with the final trilogy. They've actually done a better job with the TV shows. I'll give them that. But don't do what Disney did with episodes seven, eight, and nine. Do what Denis Villeneuve has done with Dune and looks like he is going to keep on doing with Dune. Do that. More of that, please. Please, please, please. But speaking of sci-fi and Star Wars, yesterday was May the 4th and also my son's 12th birthday. Happy birthday, Daniel Joseph Mullet. You are a huge blessing, not just to our family, but to everyone who knows you. You are an encouragement. You make people laugh and smile and feel welcome and It's a great influence. It's a great example. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're part of this family. We love you very much. But May the 4th, let's talk briefly about a piece in the Denver Post by John Wenzel. Commentary on May the 4th, the Star Wars marketing holiday, a fan confronts his addiction. Disney and their May 4th barrage of Star Wars content now heralds a year-round threat. Quoting John Wenzel. I was six years old when I saw Star Wars, The Return of the Jedi in a movie theater. As I tottered past the lobby posters on the way out, my dad and uncle grinning beside me, I was more slack-jawed and dreamy than I'd ever been. I wonder if that experience is even possible anymore with Star Wars. The parade of animated, live-action, video game versions, and other spinoffs has barely flagged since Disney bought Lucasfilm in 2012 and began revving up the assembly line. The diminishing returns are clearer than ever in the wide-ranging quality from the brilliant The Last Jedi to the atrocious Rise of Skywalker and what feels like corporate demands for more, more, more. May the 4th, the unofficial Star Wars holiday, also feels more official with each passing year, like an in-joke that's become public and less funny for it. Significantly, Return of the Jedi is celebrating its 40th anniversary, having been released on May 25th, 1983. That can't help but remind me of watching Star Wars movies on my belly, in my grandparents' carpeted living room, or taping them on VHS and pouring over them endlessly at home. Some first-wave Star Wars fans are old enough to be grandparents themselves. By contrast, my kids aged 6 and 10 sail right past the Star Wars movies and TV series on Disney+, Plus because they're just one of many eye-popping 
instantly consumable entertainment products battling for their brains. Shared universes are easy to find, as are, fortunately, shows with race and gender diverse heroes and stories. The Star Wars brand, until uh, fairly recently, was none of these. Now, let me just stop right there and say a couple things. One, if there's an addictive quality to some of these things for many, that is not so good. And there's an unhealthiness to forgetting that these are just movies or books or video games or TV shows. We don't want to be a slave to anything as Christians. Paul says in the New Testament that all things are lawful for me, but I will not become a slave to anything. And what's more typical fare for the Christian to think about is food or drink or in our day, drugs or fill in the blank. We don't want to become addicts to even things that are necessities. And this is where fasting comes in for the Christian, where periodically when we really need to devote ourselves to prayer, seeking the Lord's face, asking him for wisdom, asking him for his grace in a particular situation or a difficulty or a challenge or temptation that we're confronting, we fast from food or drink, or there are other kinds of fasts that you can engage in. But when it comes to alternative universes presented in fictional stories, however well designed, however well conceived of, there's a particularly unhealthy aspect to addiction there, which is not so good for us to just shrug off and say, yeah, some people are just into that. No, no, it's not so good. There's something tragic when a middle-aged man, for instance, never got married, never had any kids, doesn't have good hygiene, lives by himself, is overweight, doesn't get out, spends all of his days reading comic books, watching movies and TV shows, playing board games with his friends, when he's never actually lived his own life. He's just been trapped in these alternative universes. That's a tragic thing. And what we don't want to do is say, well, because some people go that way, therefore we can't, we need to make really strict rules for ourselves and say, we can't watch any of this. We can't read any of this. We can't enjoy any of this. We can't talk about any of this. We can't know any of this. I think that's a mistake, which some very conservative reactionary people make. On the other hand, I don't think that we should just shrug it off and say, well, that's one way to live your life. I think we should call people sometimes to grow up. I think we should challenge them and say, you really need to live a more full life. And what are you hiding from? You know, for one, you might be drawn to this because it's exciting, but then is there excitement in the real world, in real life that you are missing out on because you think it's all just found in these fictional stories. You know, my test would be if these stories are helping us to live fuller lives in the real world, or if our understanding of these things produces a kind of cultural literacy that allows us to explain certain things in terms and with concepts that are going to be familiar to people who consume them, then that's one thing, right? I think there's a benefit there, but we should be weighing costs and benefits we should be looking at, okay, at what point is enough enough? And you say, okay, that's 
That's good. On to something else. A good example would be after Roe v. Wade was overturned last summer by the Supreme Court of the United States of America, Kevin DeYoung published a piece addressing some very superficial, shallow, and dare I say it, compromised calls from prominent pastors in mainstream American evangelicalism to not celebrate. And Kevin DeYoung wrote a brilliant piece suggesting how would it be if Star Wars were redone, the original trilogy was redone without any of the celebration after the blowing up of the Death Stars. Because, hey, you know what? While you're celebrating, all of the families of those stormtroopers are mourning. What about all the people who are sad because they're pro-empire? What do you think about them? Also, lest you get a little ahead of yourself, how have you been treating people? Are you perfect that you would oppose the empire? You rebels, you rebel scum. Maybe you should just think about your own inadequacies. Let God deal with your enemies. No, I mean, we wouldn't watch that redux of Star Wars. That would be garbage and nonsense. That would be absurd. And yet, that's what he compared leading evangelical Americans, pastors, prominent Christian authors saying, don't celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade, too. And rightly so. And I think all the more rather than less for his having put it in Star Wars terms, a lot of American Christians who don't know their Bibles nearly so well as they know the Star Wars movies or the Marvel movies had a light bulb click on. And even people who aren't Christians would readily understand that kind of an analogy. In the New Testament, we see Paul the Apostle quoting Greek poets, being familiar, being well-versed with their philosophers and being able to hold his own talking with Greeks as a result, being able to write to Gentile Christians as a result. So there can be a benefit and we could say it's permissible for us to, by God's grace, enjoy these things, indulge in these things to some extent. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to become slaves to these things. And some people do. And that's a fact. And my stomach churns a little bit about <laughs> this John Wetzel writing for the Denver Post about how up until Disney started wokeifying Star Wars, we didn't have representation for people of color and minorities of other kinds in the Star Wars universe, which is nonsense, by the way. It's just absolute nonsense. That's like saying that Tolkien didn't have enough diversity in his stories. It's like you have racism dealt with, with the dwarves and the elves and the men and the orcs and the various others. You have all of those themes dealt with in Lord of the Rings and in Star Wars for that matter. But because those themes weren't dealt with in a woke way, they don't count. See? And that's because woke is another way that people are taken captive in our day. And it's driving out like an aggressive cancer. It's driving out every other way of seeing the world historically, culturally, theologically. But let's talk briefly, back to the real world for a moment. Let's talk briefly about May the 1st. We just talked about May 4th, but let's talk about May 1st. I know it's been a few days ago, but we're not even a week out at this point. 
And I'll draw your attention to Britannica.com, their entry for May Day, subtitle International Observance. We find that May Day is also called Workers' Day or International Workers' Day, and it commemorates the historic struggles and gains made by workers and the labor movement observed in many countries on May 1st. In the United States and Canada, a similar observance known as Labor Day occurs on the first Monday of September. In 1889, an international federation of socialist groups and trade unions designated May 1st as a day in support of workers in commemoration of the Haymarket Riot in Chicago, 1886. Bear in mind, this is a mere two decades post-American Civil War, the Haymarket Riot. Five years later, U.S. President Grover Cleveland, uneasy with the socialist origins of Workers' Day, signed legislation to make Labor Day already held in some states on the first Monday of September the official U.S. holiday in honor of workers. Canada followed suit not long afterward. In Europe, May 1st was historically associated with rural pagan festivals, but the original meaning of the day was gradually replaced by the modern association with the labor movement. In the Soviet Union, leaders embraced the new holiday, believing it would encourage workers in Europe and the United States to unite against capitalism. The day became a significant holiday in the Soviet Union and in the Eastern Bloc countries with high-profile parades, including one in Moscow's Red Square, presided over by top government and Communist Party functionaries celebrating the worker and showcasing Soviet military might. In Germany, Labor Day became an official holiday in 1933 after the rise of the Nazi Party. Ironically, Germany abolished free unions the day after establishing the holiday, virtually destroying the German labor movement. With the breakup of the Soviet Union and the fall of communist governments in Eastern Europe in the late 20th century, large-scale May Day celebrations in that region declined in importance. In dozens of countries around the world, however, May Day has been recognized as a public holiday and it continues to be celebrated with picnics and parties while serving as the occasion for demonstrations and rallies in support of workers. So a note on this, a couple episodes ago, I was talking about how I was talking with my wife and I asked her, do you know what May Day is? What the significance of May Day is? She says, well, I think it's uh, I think it's to do with the transition from spring to summer, right? And that's true, right? That's true. But also for those on the left, for socialists, for communists, May Day is something of a holiday to demonstrate, agitate along the lines of workers of the world unite. And the idea here is that we need to promote class struggle. That's the big idea with May Day for the left. Now, it's interesting to me that Grover Cleveland intentionally said, okay, in the U.S., we'll celebrate workers. Yeah, let's do that. We're going to do it in September, though, not May 1st, because he wanted to distance the U.S. from socialism. He was uneasy with the socialism thing, as we should be, because socialism is satanic. Agitating against capitalism for communists really is just a stand-in for agitating against 
anything being private, belonging to a private person. And this is not just a question of property narrowly defined. Like, this is my microphone that I'm recording on. This is my desk that I'm standing at. This is my smartphone that I'm checking for notifications. We think capitalism and we think big corporations owning factories and the means of production leading to more so-called equitable distribution of wealth. That's what the Marxists want us to be thinking about. And they'll highlight instances of abuse by very wealthy people to say, ah, see, we need to be regulating these people and taking their wealth away from them because apparently it's corrupted them. And we don't have enough wealth compared to how much wealth these people have. And it's not fair that they have so much more wealth than we do. So let's take it away from them and let's give it to the people who will vote for us and our politics. Bear in mind and remember, the Nazis were socialists. They were nationalists, sure, but they were national socialists. That's where the Z comes from. Na, Z, national socialists. And the day after they made May Day an official holiday in Germany, the day after is when they abolished the free labor unions, which in the US, the Democrats are always championing unions. We need more unions, more unions, more unions. At a certain point, the socialists say, when they get power over a whole country, these smaller unions no longer represent the interests of the workers and the people. Now, the party, one party, the party is going to represent all of the workers. And what you do is you get more and more eggs in fewer and fewer baskets until there's just one big basket with all the eggs in it. And anybody who says, well, wait a second, you guys are dropping the basket and breaking all the eggs. Anybody who says that becomes public enemy number one, even if they're entirely right, maybe especially if they're entirely right, they have to be destroyed again, because of supposedly the interest of the people. So we have to be clear about these things. Once again, 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 I'll emphasize all things are permissible. Not all things are beneficial. I will not become a slave to anything. And there's a lot of people in America today who have become captives of leftist ideology due to our education system being captive to the left, due to our corporate news media being captive to the left, due to our social media institutions being captive to the left, due to our pop culture, stories, narratives, myths, legends being captive to the left. That's something we have to be very careful about when we do indulge even just in moderation that we ourselves are not taken captive by vain human philosophy. But speaking of socialism, and communism. The Russian government says the Kremlin was hit by Ukrainian drones and blames Kiev. Some reporting highlighted on MSN.com from the Wall Street Journal, a story written by Bojan Pankevsky, Thomas Grove, and Anne M. Simmons, highlights that there was an attack, an attempt to assassinate Vladimir Putin. And the claim is that Ukraine was acting on orders from the United States 
Russia has made that a public statement that Ukraine doesn't do anything without orders from Washington. Therefore, this is actually a hostile action from the United States. Therefore, they're building more and more of a case for just an out-and-out war with the United States, trying to pressure us to back off of supporting Ukraine so that Russia has a chance of winning against Ukraine. Russia and China both are trying to build an international consensus that America is really everything that's wrong in the world today. And let me just point out why that should mean anything to you, a lowly American citizen or a lowly individual citizen of some other country in the world. Why it matters is that our having a credible testimony as a country is inseparable from our having good character objectively and being consistent. If we are consistently found to be liars about something so fundamental as when life begins or whether abortion is murder or what is a woman, what is a man, if we are consistently found to be liars and vicious and depraved and immoral and corrupt, then when we make a claim about what's going on in the Ukraine or in Russia or in China or anywhere else in the world, nobody will believe us and nobody will have our backs. Nobody will stand with us. And even we ourselves won't support our own initiatives. We will become unstable in all of our ways, double-minded. I think we have as a country. I think that's why we are suffering the way that we are suffering is we are double-minded. We are hypocrites at the highest levels of our government. But as individual citizens, we can steer that in a better direction. We can seek the welfare of the city to which the Lord our God has brought us in our exile. And we should. At my interest here with the story about the drones and Moscow is not primarily in whether the Ukraine tried to kill Putin, whether the US ordered a hit on Putin, whether Russia actually maybe has some people in their own house wanting to kill Putin, carrying out this attempt on his life. My question is actually more foundational, and it has to do with how a people has credibility. How do we get credibility? How do we have credibility? How do we keep our credibility? How do we have a good conscience for one thing, first and foremost, but also for another thing? How do we have a good reputation? Not by carrying on the way that the Democrats want us to, not by promoting around the world what the Democrats have been promoting around the world for the last 25 years or so, at least. Longer, to be sure, but in earnest, with regards to homosexuality, bisexuality, transgenderism, and increasingly the normalization of pedophilia, that's not the way. That is not the way to have either a good conscience or right standing before God or the trust of other countries, other peoples. We are being made to stink, and there will be a judgment on that if we don't repent. I can't repent as a whole country, on behalf of my whole country. But I can individually follow after the Lord and say what is true and do what is right. And if that catches hold of my countrymen, if that actually sets them free, even though they are captive right now, if that sets them free to live lives of righteousness, there's a blessing 
in the life to come for them and in this life for our country, for our people, for our generation. And I want that for us. But to gain a little bit more perspective, how about let's go back in time and let's talk about the remote island where Napoleon spent his final years. National Geographic, in their travel category, had a piece published back in February 2020 by Emma Thompson, photographs by Robert Ormerod, beginning as follows. St. Helena, small island. In 1785, when Napoleon Bonaparte was still a student, he scribbled these words on the last page of his geography book. And oh, the irony, 30 years later, the deposed French emperor was exiled and later died on this remote British outpost in the Atlantic Ocean. Yet even today, few people know anything about the place or even where it is. But that's changing because in October 2017, St. Helena welcomed its first commercial flight, previously only accessible via a five-day trip on the RMS St. Helena, the 47-square-mile island can now be reached by a four-hour flight from South Africa. Accessibility hasn't come easily. The inaugural flight was delayed for over a year due to dangerous wind conditions. The headlines weren't kind. The British press dubbed it the world's most useless airport. Even though downgrading to smaller planes and training pilots intensively for eight months solved the issue, the airport has struggled to shrug off its shaky start. Currently, only nine pilots in the world are qualified to fly into St. Helena. Quote, it's classed as a Category C airport, the toughest tier, end quote, says Jaco Henning, the South African pilot who landed that maiden flight. Now, why do I bring this up? A couple of reasons. One, Napoleon Bonaparte was the most famous, arguably the most powerful man in the world for a while. He was the terror of Europe, but what he did had ramifications and ripple effects throughout the entire world. He changed the course of history by his actions, by his being very clever very brilliant, very ambitious, very effective for a while. And then at a certain point, he lost. It seemed as though his star would rise and rise and rise and that he would be around forever. And everybody, whether they loved him or they hated him, was obsessed with Napoleon Bonaparte. And then, as quickly as he had risen, he fell. And where did the British put him? On this remote island where it would be impossible for him to be rescued or for him to escape. Now, interestingly, they didn't kill him, which you might wonder, well, why didn't they? They didn't kill him. They exiled him to this little island. And why do you suppose that is? I think it was so he would serve as something of a symbolic reminder to any other would-be upstarts who might do likewise. If you do what he has done, you will live out the rest of your days in obscurity under the control of your enemies, and they might be kind after a fashion, but make no mistake, even the kindness is to assert a kind of dominance morally over you, given what your leadership 
unleashed in the way of destruction, upset, death for so many people. Lest anyone else start getting any ideas that they're going to follow in his footsteps or copycat him, take a look at where he's at. Do you want to end up there? You might win for a time, but death or exile, neither is probably how you want your story to end. And now it's a curious thing because there's this airport and even flying there with modern technology in recent years, even just flying there is extraordinarily challenging, much less sailing a ship there and keeping Napoleon on the island, flying there to visit as a tourist in this day is difficult. It's one of the hardest places to fly into and out of because of the wind and the remoteness. I think this bears mentioning in our day with certain figures like Vladimir Putin, like Xi Jinping, even like here in the United States, Joe Biden, certain figures who seem as though they will always be a focus of our attention. They will always be causing the upsets and the troubles that they are causing right now and have been causing at a certain point, their number comes up and that's the end of their influence, whether because they die in battle or they're assassinated with drones or they die of old age or they're defeated by their enemies and captured and exiled. And the big question should be for us, how do we not get taken captive by even the very real stories, the very real current events items surrounding public figures, rulers of nations, strongmen, dictators, corrupt politicians. How do we keep from becoming captive to the news cycle about them? It's not so good when somebody obsesses about Star Wars or Dune or Lord of the Rings to the extent that they can't function. It's also not so good when people obsess about current events to the point that they can't function. Both alike, not so good. All things are permissible, but I will not become a slave to anything, Paul says. And so some people I know will talk about taking a break from the news. And I don't believe long-term it's such a good thing to just completely check out of what's going on, current events, just totally shut it out. I don't think that's so good long-term. But for a time, could it be very beneficial to fast from the news, current events, so that you devote yourself to prayer to repentance, to asking God for wisdom, attending to personal matters in a way that's going to honor God. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would be really wise for some people. I know that would be really wise for me sometimes to do. And I do in small bursts. I don't announce it. I'm not trying to brag about it. I just intuitively know sometimes, Hey, I need to take a step back from this. I need to wean myself from the news cycle or from this subject, if I'm going to be holistically living for the Lord my God in a wholly blameless way, if I'm going to serve him faithfully, holistically, with all of me, in a long-term way, being fruitful, I'm going to need to even just demonstrate to myself that I'm not a slave to this thing. Maybe demonstrate to other people as well, but first and foremost, I want God to know when he looks at the inner me of my heart, when he looks at my intentions and my thoughts and my affections, for him to say, I am pleasing to him. You know, going back to Leviticus and this whole business about holiness and the priests and physical defects. And we say, well, what's the big deal? 
you know, it's not a man's fault, presumably. I mean, unless he was just being stupid in his younger days. It's not a man's fault, you would assume, if he has crushed testicles or if he's a dwarf. That one, you're definitely not looking at somebody having made bad choices themselves, and that's why they're a dwarf. But the point is, even when it comes to that, our physical condition, it's significant. Are we being good stewards of the physical bodies, of our minds, of our hearts, to present ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord our God? Are we doing that? We should be. We should be. Moving on. Back to the U.S. And let's do talk a little bit more about some current events items locally. Another piece from the Denver Post in the crime and public safety category. Who should police the police? Boulder considers ousting oversight panel member over allocations of bias. Lisa Sweeney Miran has refused to resign from city's police oversight panel, says she is not biased. Elise Schmelzer published this piece May 4th just yesterday, Star Wars Day. Should a community leader who has advocated for reallocating tax money away from law enforcement and said officers can't be trusted serve on a police oversight panel? That's the question the Boulder City Council will consider Thursday when it decides whether to remove Lisa Sweeney Miran from the city's police oversight panel. The vote follows a $20,000 investigation into complaints filed by Boulder residents that the group that selected Sweeney Miran failed to properly consider her advocacy for police reform and involvement in a lawsuit against the city for forcibly removing tents from people experiencing homelessness. The city council will weigh whether having opinions on police reform counts as bias and should disqualify someone from participating on a panel tasked with improving the Boulder Police Department, the selection committee, and the council previously reaffirmed the decision to impanel Sweeney Miran, but an outside investigator last month recommended she resign. Sweeney Miran refused and insists she hasn't done anything wrong. Quote, my heartfelt concern over past instances of police violence and that I am open to alternatives to police responses when force is not needed does not make me biased. It makes me the sort of thoughtful person who is intended to be on Boulder's police oversight panel. She said on Twitter, the 11 person Boulder Police Oversight Panel reviews and makes recommendations on police discipline investigations, recommends policy and training changes, and suggests topics for the city's independent police monitor to investigate. The city council created the panel and the independent monitor position in 2020 after a black student was detained at gunpoint while picking up trash in front of his own home. Sunni Miran and other people added to the panel in January were selected by two members of the existing panel and representatives from two local nonprofits, the NAACP of Boulder County and El Centro Amistad. City ordinance requires that panelists demonstrate an absence of any real or perceived bias, prejudice, or conflict of interest, end quote. Now, I bring this up. <clears throat> I bring this up not being an expert on Lisa Sweeney Miran, not chiefly concerned with whether she should resign or she should stay on the panel. Generally, I would agree that when you want oversight of any body, any government institution or group, governmental or not, you need to have people who are providing oversight, who are able to actually disagree with the decisions that have been made and who are able to actually say, no, that was wrong. That was not good. But you also 
need to have a fundamental understanding and grasp of and support of the stated goal and mission and objective of the organization, the institution that you are providing oversight for. So both and, right? For critics to say, hey, this gal is for defunding the police. She's opposed to policing. On principle, she shouldn't be overseeing policing when she's opposed to policing. You know, that's a valid complaint to hear, to consider. Also, it's a valid defense to say, I'm not opposed to policing on principle. I'm opposed to bad policing. And who else is going to provide oversight if you don't have anybody who's able to say that's, you know, good cop, bad cop. This is good policing. This is bad policing. We want more of this. We want less of that. But let's scale it up, right? In the interest of consistency, hop on over to the Daily Wire with me and a report from Ryan Saavedra from the day before yesterday. Whistleblower alleges FBI has evidence of Biden engaging in bribery scheme with foreign national. Let me suggest to you that for all the same reasons that you would want to have somebody who's able to actually objectively, independently, without bias, hold accountable local law enforcement, let's say in the city of Boulder, you also have to have the people who are providing oversight and accountability for the chief executive, the president of the United States of America, similarly able to say, no, that's not appropriate. Nope, that's unethical. Nope, that's not lawful. Nope, that is not what we do. If the FBI has evidence of Biden taking bribes from foreign nationals and they're not doing anything about it, that's deeply concerning. That is deeply troubling. If the FBI is not doing anything because they're afraid, individual agents and management directors, etc., are afraid of reprisals from the left or from others in government, that is still more concerning. If the FBI is pulling for Biden because they also are corrupt, who have the evidence, and they think by covering up his crimes, they also will not be held accountable, that's concerning. There's a number of possibilities here for why, if the FBI has evidence, they're not acting on it. Uh, There's a number of possibilities for why that would be, but always round. If we have one standard of judgment when it advances the causes of the left and a opposite standard of judgment when it comes to conservatives, Republicans, people opposed to the agenda of the left, we don't have justice in this country. We should hope and pray that there would be impartial, equal application of the laws for all, regardless of their political affiliation, just like we say regardless of their skin color, or whether they're a man or a woman, or their religion. There should be an equal application of the laws, whether you're a Democrat or you're a Republican. And we haven't been seeing that, sadly. But let's talk a little bit about media. Greg Gutfield, Fox News host, comedian, defends Tucker, blasts hall monitor failures, desperate to destroy him. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but just briefly, Greg Gutfield 
tweeted out May 2nd. Apparently everyone understands nonsense banter between segments, except for hall monitor failures, bitterly chronicling the lives of the far more successful. So here again, we see the importance of having a fixed standard of judgment and not showing partiality, not being partial to those who are poor, not deferring to those who are great, also not using some arbitrary standard to go after people you're jealous of, not taking out your personal vendetta against somebody because you just don't like them. You're now going to amplify anything you can possibly find out about them, even private conversations, to destroy them, to silence them. This too has become a feature of American life in recent years, in recent decades. And it's corrupt. It is something to be repented of and to be ashamed of. It is not okay. We have become captives to the ambitions and the prejudices and the bitterness of people who define what is good based on what they want. And they define what is evil based on whatever stands between them and what they want. And we need to repent of that. We need to be repent of actively supporting and endorsing that and legitimizing it and normalizing it. And we need to repent of having passively endorsed it, not speaking out against it. We need to repent of not having provided the oversight that we, the people, are supposed to be providing in these cases. But speaking of oversight and speaking of media, Peter Ducey confronts White House over dubious claim about immigration and things quickly get tense. Chris Enlow reports for The Blaze. I'll go ahead and play a clip for you. I will play this one because I just can't do it justice describing it to you at length. You really do need to hear it for yourself. I'll play the clip. Then I'll tell you how this relates in my view. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. You said yesterday that when it comes to illegal migration, you've seen it come down by more than 90%. Where did that number come from? It was, I was CBP speaking. is telling us the number is I hear you. I'm about to answer. I'm about, people more I'm about to answer you. Year so if you, far. If you, if the dramatics could come down just a little bit. I, um, it, if the dramatics could come down a little what's bit. What's dramatic about asking a question about. Okay, I'm, I'm going to answer. So I was speaking to the parolee program. As you know, the president put in place a parolee program to deal with, uh, to deal with certain countries uh, on, on ways that we can limit illegal migration. And we have seen, the data has shown us that it has gone down by more than 90%. That was what I was speaking and to. No, to I'm, really we're, we're going to go. We're going to move. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. All right. Now, <clears throat> before I say anything, <laughs> before I say anything, in response to this, any commentary, any analysis, any unpacking, if you even need that from me with this, it's its pretty open shut. It's pretty clear what's going on. To introduce a little bit of levity, here's what I am reminded of as I listen to Karine Jean-Pierre and Peter Ducey going back and forth. Here's cut two. You're louder than me. You're yelling you are, in I, my face. Sir, you're the one who I think needs to tone it down right now. The you are screaming at me. You're hurting my eardrums. That wasn't a word. You're not saying a word there. This is a word. That's not, that's not a word. That's a tongue trick. 
Okay, sir, 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 if you would like I would to... not like to. <laughs> uh, so you heard, I'm sure, in the middle of that clip, just weird, like, clicking noises, like... Yeah, that was that was mouthing words because it just gets absurd where, you know, I'm going to need you to lower your voice. And so he just starts mouthing words. They're getting quieter and quieter and quieter. And then they're just mouthing words back and forth at each other, you know, like the opposite of an escalation, but then there is escalation there. That's what I hear in the back and forth between Peter Ducey and Karine Jean-Pierre, White House press secretary. He's a reporter. He's supposed to ask questions. This administration doesn't like to have asked questions when the asked questions are critical of the administration. They don't like accountability. They don't like being disagreed with. They don't like being questioned. They don't like being told that they're wrong. They don't like being told no, more to the point. And let's be honest, who does like being told no? But then on the flip side, we need If we are going to be a country where we have checks and balances and a separation of powers, we need to have the ability to tell ourselves no, for one thing. For another thing, we have to have the capacity to tell each other. I think that's not correct. And here's why. And we have to be reasonable. We have to be able to listen to each other. And there has to be cross-examination. In Proverbs, we are told the first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him. If we have from the highest levels and all the way down from the very top to the bottom, everyone saying only the first to state his case is allowed to speak. And the other who comes and examines him is not allowed to cross-examine. We're going to get testy. We're going to get irritable. We're going to try and malign the character of the one who would come and cross-examine. If that's going to mark our discourse, I say we don't have civil discourse and we can't have a society that is sustained on that premise. We will destroy ourselves And the social fabric will be ripped into very tiny pieces. That can't be the way of things. It just can't. And if you say what I just said with people listening who have just been listening to the corporate media and they've been indoctrinated by the left, they've been brainwashed by the left, they've been taken captive by leftist philosophy What they'll say is they'll say, ah, but what about Trump? And I say, it's irrelevant whether we're talking about Trump or we're talking about Biden. It is true objectively across the board, whoever we're talking about. If there's not an ability to cross-examine, if there's not checks and balances, if there's not accountability, then we are in very real trouble. I don't care if Trump's doing it. I don't care if Biden's doing it. It's unwise to not allow for cross-examination or disagreement or accountability. That's a dangerous place for us to be. And that's exactly where we are. And we've been camping out here for quite some time. And I say it's because we have lost humility and we've become wise in our own eyes and our foolish hearts are darkened. And it is only going to end one way. We might not know the details and the particulars of when and by what means precisely, God knows, It will only end one way, and that is in our destruction, if we can't be reasoned with, we can't reason with one another, we can't disagree with each other, we can't cross-examine. Now, perhaps, possibly, maybe, maybe, just maybe, a little bit of good news. You want to hear some good news? Not all the levity should come in the form of funny little clips of Key and Peele. 
Joseph Curl published a piece just yesterday at the Daily Wire. Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Republican Matt Gates join forces. Wait, really? Yes, actually. Who could have expected this? Politics, they say, makes strange bedfellows, Joseph Curl writes. But to think that Democratic Socialist Rep. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat from New York, and uber-conservative Republican Representative Matt Gates, Republican from Florida, would join forces over, well, anything, is something few who follow Capitol Hill could have ever predicted. Matt Gates and AOC, along with a couple other lawmakers, have introduced the Bipartisan Restoring Faith in Government Act, which would prohibit financial investment by members of Congress, their spouses, and any dependents. Quote, the ability to individually trade stocks erodes the public's trust in government, Ocasio-Cortez said. When members have access to classified information, we should not be trading in the stock market on it. It's really that simple. Members of Congress, Gates said, are spending their time trading futures instead of securing the future of our fellow Americans. We cannot allow the swamp to prioritize investing in stocks over investing in our country. As long as concerns about insider trading hang over the legislative process, Congress will never regain the trust of the American people. Our responsibility in Congress is to serve the people, not hedge bets on the stock market, the Florida lawmaker said. The bipartisan bill comes as numerous lawmakers reportedly sold their shares in First Republic Bank in just weeks before the firm collapsed and was sold to J.P. Morgan Chase by financial regulators. First Republic Bank imploded on Monday, weeks after Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank similarly collapsed as account holders with balances above the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation threshold rushed to withdraw their funds. Periodic transaction disclosure forms revealed that multiple lawmakers jettisoned their shares in First Republic Bank or acquired shares in J.P. Morgan Chase over the past two months a phenomenon which allows accusations that some lawmakers routinely buy stocks at opportune times and cut losses by selling shares, the Daily Wire reported on Wednesday. Now, let me just say, I welcome this. We need more of this, actually. If AOC and Matt Gates can agree on this, I can agree with them as well. I think that this is important for our government to regain the trust of the American people, to serve as an example of good conduct, good character, integrity to the American people. Also, this is a way of restoring confidence with our allies and our adversaries and our trading partners and all of the other folks, if there are other categories besides, around the world in countries that we have interactions with, we can restore their respect for us by doing these kinds of things. We will be a much better country if this passes. We will be a much better country. Certain elected officials may not be as well off moving forward, but I think it needs to go another step beyond and there needs to be investigation. This is unethical. If it was legal and the folks who write the laws wrote it into the laws that they could do this unethical thing. It's still unethical. And there's a God in heaven who knows. And we should do justice here. And part of doing justice would be for this to no longer be merely unethical, but for it to be unlawful as well. Moving on. Alex Nitzberg writes for TheBlaze.com. Watch. Buttigieg doesn't give straight answer about whether he wants to remain transportation secretary for another term. And I'll play the clip for you. 
Let me just comment briefly. Good choice of words. He doesn't give a straight answer. He doesn't give a straight answer. I don't know if you meant to be funny there, but well played. Either way, he doesn't give a straight answer because he's not a straight man. When we vote for people who are going to put in positions of authority, those who are crooked, and we know that they're crooked before they are put into positions of greater responsibility and authority, we should not be surprised when they keep on being crooked. But here you go. Here is cut three. Take a listen. If he is reelected, do you hope to serve another term as Secretary of Transportation? Well, uh, you know, right now I got my head down seeking to uh, deliver on all of the historic opportunities that are in front of us. It's demanding work, but it's rewarding work. I'm very glad to be doing it. And, uh, you know, the, the future is uh, uh, we'll, we'll find out what's uh, what's next. But uh, uh, right now we got a lot to be proud of and a lot more to do. All right, all right. I also spoke with the Transportation Secretary about some of the criticism that he's faced over the Ohio train derailment and his concerns about the new budget proposal from House Republicans. You've had a lot to say this week about the budget proposal from House Republicans and what that would mean for rail safety in the wake of that train derailment in Ohio and other situations like that. How would this proposed budget impact those safety measures here in the Midwest and elsewhere? Well, this is no time to be cutting railroad safety inspections, but that's exactly what this GOP budget proposal would do. They've proposed sweeping across the board cuts to discretionary spending, and that would certainly hit us hard in transportation. It would mean less inspection of railroads, which is a very important part of how we prevent uh, there from being more uh, accidents and, and derailments, including uh, things like what happened to the community of East Palestine. And it would also uh, frustrate and interrupt our efforts to improve and modernize air traffic control uh, related systems. You know, earlier this year, uh, just that was just one system and a 90-minute ground stop wreaked havoc on the national airspace. And we're uh, working hard to modernize that, but that would be delayed by these budget cuts. It would also mean that we wouldn't be able to accelerate our process to get more air traffic controllers hired and on board. If you don't have enough air traffic controllers, that means uh, more cancellations and delays potentially. Uh, so in my view, this is the exact wrong direction to be moving in. This shouldn't be a partisan issue. I think uh, Democrats and Republicans alike should be able to agree that we need to get tougher, not weaker, when it comes to uh, uh, safety on our railroads. And we need to be doing more, not less, when it comes to air traffic control. Okay. So cut. <laughs> Let's point out a couple things. One, if a department, like the Department of Transportation, but not just, if a department is doing a poor job with money that they already have, should we give that department more money or should we give that department less money? If they already have a lot of money on discretionary spending being allocated to things that are only dubiously supportive of transportation safety, like inspecting railroads and also making sure that our aircraft, our air transportation is safe. If their discretionary funds are going into promoting social justice and social engineering and not actually first and foremost public safety, transportation safety, then to say, okay, we're going to cut your budget here might actually make us more safe. Also, too, as a Christian, I look at not just you know, what is the lifestyle choice, what is the sexual orientation of this or that public official. You know, that is important and it should give us some clue. But also, 
Let's just talk about the principle of he who is faithful with a little will be entrusted with more. He who is not faithful with even a little bit, what little he has will be taken from him and given to the one who is faithful, will be given to another. In the parable of the talents, we have three servants who are each given a certain amount of money, a certain number of talents, which is currency, from the master before he leaves on some trip, and they are each able to, they each have the opportunity to invest, to invest and make a profit and are able to present that to the master when he returns. One buries the talents in a field. And when the master returns, he says, you wicked servant, you could have at least put the money in a bank and it would have earned interest. You wicked servant. And what does the master do? He takes the money that had been given to the wicked servant that buried the talents in a field And he gives that money to the one who had invested well, so that it can be invested well. So if Republicans are saying, hey, you're not being faithful with the amount of money that's already been appropriated to you, we're going to take from you and give that money to somebody else or to some other department, or we're going to tighten your belt because clearly you're too distracted by these other initiatives that you're pursuing per Biden's larger vision for the United States of America and promoting DEI, et cetera. If Republicans are going that direction with it, we shouldn't just uncritically accept the talking point that Republicans are going to make us less safe by cutting our discretionary spending allocation. Don't buy that. Now, to give some credit to Pete Buttigieg, his answer to that question of cutting spending cutting their budget is clearer than his answer to the question of, would you like to be transportation secretary if Biden is reelected, if he gets a second term? That second question got a better answer, a more robust answer. It's still wrong, but it got a better answer, a more substantive answer than the answer to the first question. Would you like to still be transportation secretary? But it's a relevant question when maybe you don't actually want to be the secretary for the Department of Transportation. We're interpreting some of how you're relating here as being sluggish because maybe you don't want the job. Maybe you don't actually care about doing this job well. Maybe that's why you're not doing it well, because you're not actually passionate about it. If the Biden administration wants to tell the whole of the federal government, you're all going to, all of you departments, all of you bureaucrats, all of you secretaries, you're all going to promote so-called environmental justice, for instance, for example. Or if we see certain sectors of the federal government pursuing, promoting, however you want to put it, inclusivity with regards to sexual orientation and transgenderism, even though that has nothing to do with their department's core purpose for existing in the first place. It's reasonable for Republicans to key in on Pete Buttigieg, and the Department of Transportation, with all the train derailments we've had, very costly, very dangerous train derailments that are going to cause health problems for residents of small communities across the country. It's very reasonable for Republicans to key in on that and say, hmm, hey, wait a second. What are you doing with the money? There has to be accountability. There has to be oversight. There has to be the ability to cross-examine and know You can't just hide behind, ah, well, they're cutting funds 
Therefore, we're going to be less safe. That's not how it works. If that were how it works, then pouring more and more and more money into the education system would have our students in this country that go to public schools getting better and better and better educations. But that's not how it works. At a certain point, you get diminishing returns for more investment. Sometimes putting more people in a meeting, everybody talks less and you actually get less accomplished. Sometimes you need fewer people in a meeting. Sometimes you need less money in the budget because the money is getting spent on things that have nothing to do with your core competence or your core purpose for being there in the role in the first place. But moving on, on a related note, May Reed Elordi over at the Daily Wire published a piece day before yesterday. Navy hires active duty drag queen to combat sinking recruitment. Here's another witty turn of phrase, sinking recruitment, Navy, get it? Drag queen. Joshua Kelly, 29, who identifies as non-binary, became one of five Navy digital ambassadors in a pilot recruitment program that lasted from October to March. Kelly's drag queen name is Harpy Daniels. From joining to 2016 and being able to share my drag experience on my off time with my fellow sailors has been a blessing, Kelly wrote on Instagram in November when he announced his digital ambassador appointment. Quote, this experience has brought me so much strength, courage, and ambition to continue being an advocate and representation of queer sailors, he told his more than 8,000 followers. Quote, thank you to the Navy for giving me this opportunity. I don't speak for the Navy, but simply sharing my experience in the Navy. hoo and let's go slay, end quote. Now, the trouble here is this is part of what makes us less ready to fight and win a potential war with China. This makes us less ready. This is going to hurt recruitment of the kind of people we need who have good character and who love their country and come from military families. This is going to hurt recruitment, not help it. It's also going to hurt the quality of our fighting force and their military readiness. If you're not being recruited, you're just in. Is this why you joined? Because you want to queer the whole world? You want to trans the whole world? I surely do hope not. I surely do hope not. But I know that it's not the reason why a lot of people, a lot of rural country folk in particular, hold their hand over their heart when they say the Pledge of Allegiance or they sing the national anthem. This is not the America that they know and love or that their fathers and their forefathers farther back bled and died for. This is not what they wanted us to be free to, free to sin. They wanted us to be free to love God and our families and our friends and our communities. So this is an awful, ugly, horrible thing, actually. And this is an example of the kind of oversight remedy that I would like to see Republicans pursuing more and more, that we would root out instances like this, whether it's Department of Transportation or it's Department of Defense or it's Department of Education, root out examples of social engineering like this and say, if that's what you're going to spend the money on, we're going to cut your budget. We're going to cut your discretionary budget in the new year. We're going to tell you specifically what you can spend the taxpayers' dollars on, what you can pour your time and attention into, because this does not make us more ready. It makes us less ready. This does not improve morale for the people who actually fight for this country who want to defend this country. 
from all enemies, foreign and domestic. This hurts morale. You're at war with reality itself here. But let's take a step back. Let's switch gears again. Chris Enlow at TheBlaze.com published a piece also the day before yesterday. Former BuzzFeed top editor says Facebook had explicit goal to elect Barack Obama, a democratic institution. I'll go ahead and play cut four. This is an interview on MSNBC with the former BuzzFeed top editor talking about, in his own words, Facebook wanting to get Obama elected. Take a listen. In July of 2019, President Trump convened about 200 conservative social media stars for a summit at the White House. Charlie Kirk was there, and so was James O'Keefe and Diamond and Silk. They weren't White House reporters, but these people were Trump's press corps. You communicate directly with our citizens without having to go through the fake news filter. It's very simple. Together, you reach more people than any television broadcast network by far, not even close. White House estimated that those social media stars had an estimated reach of 100 million people. That is nearly a third of the American population, a strong 30 percent of the population that to this day remains loyal to Trump and probably consumes mostly right wing media. But back in the day, back just a decade earlier, it wasn't really like this. As Ben Smith describes in his new book, big media sites like Gawker and The Huffington Post and BuzzFeed, they use their platforms to generate clicks and traffic. They weren't necessarily in the pursuit of advancing one candidate or ideology. They were there to monetize the attention of an audience. As editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News from 2011 to 2020, Smith helped establish the site's bonafide news department. But even from that perch... He admits he didn't see how right-wing figures would later co-opt the blogging and social media structures that some had once believed would further progressive causes. Smith writes, I certainly hadn't realized the extent to which the right-wing populism always seemed to be sitting just down the white Ikea table from this progressive Internet scene, looking over its shoulder, learning its lessons. Gasoline can create useful energy, but it can also simply burn. And by 2023, it seemed clear that the power of this new social energy had been to destroy any institution from the media to the political establishment that it touched. Those of us who work in media, politics and technology are largely concerned now with figuring out how to hold these failing institutions together or to build new ones that are resistant to the forces we helped unleash. Joining us now is the man, the author himself, Ben Smith, co-founder and editor-in-chief of Semaphore and author of this new book, Traffic, Genius, Rivalry and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral, which is out today. Ben, congratulations on this book. I don't know when you had time to write it, um, but you're prolific in many senses of the word. I guess I was very much struck by, I'm not going to call it a mea culpa, but this idea that, you know, in this period of great innovation and, you know, building new sites and things that had never existed before and the optimism inherent in that, something dark was afoot, which is the the sort of keys, giving giving another set of people the keys, um, the Rosetta Stone, if you will, to building sites and learning about audiences, which would later um, be bastardized for totally partisan ideological purposes. Yeah. And thanks for having me on and for the kind words. And I mean, I do think, you know, I started writing the book because it felt like this moment in some sense was coming to an end. I want to Mm -hmm. kind of go back and just like figure it out what was this thing we all we all lived through. And 
I think the thing that surprised me most was going back and seeing that there was this, you know, this early internet scene where, um, it, to some degree, the explicit goal was to elect Barack Obama. For the Huffington Post, that was part of the point, you know, and, and it felt, and everyone just took for granted in that world that these were young, these were college kids, young people, newly on the internet, they were Democrats. Right. Barack Obama visited Facebook. It was sort of went without saying that Facebook was like a democratic institution. Um, and, but when you look and back, then. you know, and, and I think everybody thought, well, the, the, the high point of this whole world, this whole new digital world, is the election of Barack Obama. And, you know, in fact, look back, and the high point, the crowning achievement of this sort of new social media world is the election of Donald, Donald Trump. Trump. Absolutely. You know, and it's if you look at the figures who were present at the early in, in these sites, like Gavin McInnes, who, of course, goes on to found the Proud Boys. He's one of the co-founders co of Vice, which is anything but a sort yeah, of ev radical right-wing publication. Right. Everywhere right? you look, and, and this was sort of, this was, kind of came to me as a surprise as I was just reporting out all the characters of this early yeah. scene that, you know, at BuzzFeed, where I, where I later worked, um, the guy who founded 4chan was working out of that office. The um, Andrew Breitbart, was a, who was later the sort of key sort of in part of inventor of these new culture wars was a co-founder of Huffington Post as well. Um, Gavin McInnes, as you say, a pro leading proud boy, was at Vice. Um, Steve Bannon kind of came out, to, came in to check out Huffington Post and, and learn from it. And you know, and then I and 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 in some ways, I think they were they adopted the lessons more fully mm -hmm. than than anybody on than most people on the left. They were mo most interested in just tearing down these institutions and yeah. actually. At, some point, at one point, I went to see Bannon in 2016 in Trump Tower, and I was then the editor of BuzzFeed. And he was just totally puzzled at, at why hadn't BuzzFeed gone all in for Bernie Sanders the way he had for Trump. You know, not because he loved Bernie Sanders per se, but just because that's where the traffic was. Why not just follow the heat wherever it leads? Okay. And cut, 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 cut. Fascinating. Fascinating. So if you were listening closely, and I, I don't even think you needed to listen all that closely to catch this, what they're saying, what they're admitting is that these online publications and social media companies like Facebook were bent on getting Obama elected. And that was good because what they wanted was Obama to get elected, right? So it was good for them to do the social media blitz. It was good for them to offer up biased reporting to promote Obama and his progressive policies. That was good. It was good what they wanted. So it was good what they were doing. And simultaneously, when people who objected to the progressive program, who were opposed to leftism, who were opposed to Barack Obama, who were opposed to the Democratic Party's platform, when those people used the same tools, the same platforms, the same instruments, the same mechanisms to get Donald Trump elected, that was evil because it was them being told no. So it was good when they did it and totally fine and very pat yourself on the back, self-congratulatory, look at us. But when Trump did it, when Trump supporters did it, when Republicans did it, when conservatives did it, that was dark and an assault on our democracy and an assault on democratic institutions, so-called. And now what we need to do is figure out how to harden the internet's defenses against conservatives, being able to get their message out and hold accountable 
progressives and cross-examine them. Now, what we need to do is figure out how to shut the conservatives down. It's, it's a remarkable admission in a certain sense because you think to yourself, man, don't, don't you hear what you're saying? You're admitting explicitly to a double standard. When your side does it, you'll say, this is very brave and brilliant and clever and good. And you only have the best of intentions because what you want in your mind is good. When your political opponents do it, then it's evil. It's bad. It's awful. It's corrupt. It's nasty. It's horrible. It's rotten. It's no good. But I'm sorry, did I miss something? Or are you basically admitting that whatever you want is good and anybody who tells you no or would question you or challenge you or get in the way of what you consider to be progress, that's how you know what is evil. I I think I hear you basically saying that. I, I think that's what I'm hearing. So the adjectives are important, and we should listen for the adjectives to describe the exact same methods, the exact same mechanisms, the exact same approach to reaching would-be voters with your message. The adjectives are very important because the negative association is entirely with conservatives and Republicans. The positive association is entirely with Democrats and progressives and socialists. But it's partiality. This is unequal weights and measures. This is arbitrary. This is disingenuous. This is mercenary. This is corrupt. You know what it reminds me of is it reminds me of reading about some of English history and the Puritans documentary over at Canon Plus. Do yourself a favor. Check it out. Even if you're not a big fan of the Puritans, it's important history to know because we wouldn't have the United States of America without the Puritans and their history in the UK. But a king would come to power and have a difference of theology and epistemology and a difference with regards to ecclesiology with his predecessor. And all of a sudden, the churchmen who were in place just previously, if you want to say in the previous administration, you could, but under the previous king, those churchmen all of a sudden were being given new prayer books and being told, if you don't conduct your service from this prayer book, then you're going to be defrocked. You're going to be removed from the pulpit. In fact, you won't even be allowed to live within five miles of the town or the village or the city. And if you're found to be preaching anyways, even though the king had told you to stop, you're going to be arrested and thrown in prison and possibly tortured, possibly put to death. That, in British history, drove migration to the New World, to the colonies, and therefore drove the Declaration of Independence, which gave birth to the United States of America in the first place. But even not knowing that, just put yourself in the shoes of a 17th or 18th century member of the clergy who believed this Presbyterian model is correct, or the Westminster Confession of Faith, that is correct. And we have criticisms of both the doctrine and the practice. We have concerns about orthodoxy, sound doctrine, and orthopraxy in the Church of England, headed up by the King of England, and what's being normalized, what's being preached, what's not being preached, who is appointed, and how they conduct themselves while in 
this bishopric, for instance. It's very similar to what we're going through right now with big tech, social media, the internet age, and the double standard that Democrats have for when their loyal messengers are doing a thing versus when their political opponents are doing a thing, the exact same thing. From a tactic standpoint, I mean. And if you watch, if you follow what it is that the Democrats are proposing to do about it, to fix this problem as they see it, it's very similar to what some of the popish monarchs in British history wanted to do about the nonconformists. It's very, very similar. That mindset of I am the law, I am the state, it's very, very similar to how the Democrats are approaching this idea of regulating speech online and regulating the speech of journalists. Their standard is, if you're going to question me, if you're going to challenge me, if you're going to disagree with me, if you're going to tell me no at all on anything, then you're my enemy. And there is never a thank you. There is never a, you know, that's a really good point. Yeah, we should start factoring that in. Yeah, you're right. We should moderate this. Yep, you're right. We should curb our pursuit of this other thing because that's not good and that's not true and it's hurting people and it's having a bad effect. It's objectively bad as evidenced by the fruits it bears. But what's lurking behind the scenes is arguably something far more ominous, far scarier than the Democrats. Antifa is spooky. Don't get me wrong. BLM riots in American cities in recent years, that was bad. No two ways about it. What about China? AI Superpowers by Kai-Fu Lee. That's a book you might read if you want to know more on this. But for now, I'll play for you one last clip for this episode. Just one more. Here is Senator Ricketts, Republican from Nebraska. Take a listen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ms. Bennett, for being here today. The threat of disinformation, weaponizing information against the United States and our allies to divide us, divide our citizens, is on the rise. And I think we all feel that. It's uh, especially so because we all have access to one of these now. So citizens and policymakers all have access to that through social media or other sorts of uh, platforms. But the idea that our adversaries would try to use disinformation to divide us is not new. That was certainly something, for example, the Soviet Union prioritized during the Cold War as an element of their statecraft to destabilize the United States and our allies at the time. And I believe that in 1980, for example, there was a conservative estimate the Soviet Union spent $3 billion on disinformation campaigns as part of their overall strategy. Uh, with an increasingly aggressive China and Russia, we've entered into what seems like or feels like a new Cold War. And certainly it's true that we have, for the first time in our history, two near-peer nuclear competitors that are competing against us, and we see the spread of this disinformation. When you and I spoke in our office, my office last week, you emphasized the need for more resources for USAGM to compete against China and Russia. I think you described that China alone is outspending the U.S. Uh, 10 to 1 with regard to their campaigns. How much did the U.S. spend back during the Cold War against the Soviet Union? If the Soviet Union was spending $3 billion, do you know, ballpark, what was the U.S. spending to be able to counter that? 
Yes, Senator, as soon as I left your office, I went back and we looked at our research department to see if we could figure out something like that. Uh, I don't have the exact figures here in front of me at the moment, but it was, um, it was very similar to the ratio that we, that, we have, that we have today. And so one of the lessons from that could be that the advantages that we have in terms of providing trusted, believable, independent news and information is actually a great asset that enables us to do it much more efficiently. I, I, would, I would suggest that we are now not just facing one powerful adversary in Russia. We are facing several in Russia, China, and Iran. And China and Iran in particular are very, very skillful in using technology to help both close off their own areas and, um, and reach into other areas. So I think the you get two you get two results from that in, that information that that the ratio is probably pretty close to to what it is today one is that we we have something to offer we have a a, a weapon that's worth using and deploying and the second is that we had a certain ratio that's the same facing one major adversary whereas today we face at least three and increasing technological hurdles to to uh to leap over. So what lessons can we draw from the previous Cold War against the Soviet Union that allowed us to be successful? I mean, ultimately, the Soviet Union fell apart, and we certainly worked on getting our message out then. What lessons can we draw from that to apply to today's scenario? You know, one of the things is, I, I, I'm sure many of you have traveled around to various parts of the world, and one of the things I'd like, I, I, I tell people I'd like them to have the opportunity 50 years from now to have people say about what we're doing today, what people say we were do, about what we were doing then. Virtually any country you travel to, you will find people coming up to you and saying, I got hope from, from Voice of America, Radio for Europe, which are the two ones working in there. We, we kept on believing we could, we could win this. We could break out of this. I learned English. I moved to a different country. I had a career. We, we had the blankets over our heads. This was a tremendously powerful um, uh, tool that we had in telling people objective news information. And it was the fact that it was objective and believable, and the information they were getting from their own countries was not. We face that identical situation today, so our critical advantage still remains our independence and our believability. And I believe that you know, 50 years from now, we're going to have people coming up to us and saying, you're the reason I believe that, that, that we were all going to get through this and the, the information we were hearing from Russia and China was not correct. And cuts. What do you hear there? Do you not hear exactly what I've been telling you this whole episode? That our believability is actually a national security issue. It's not just a national security issue when something embarrassing is purported to have happened and we need to just quick sweep that under the rug. No, don't you can't talk about that. No. No, it's it's a national security issue on the front end before something corrupt is done or when we have a lot of evidence to believe something corrupt is being done or when we know because it's bragged about, it's boasted about that corrupt things are being promoted, untrue things as fundamental as biological reality. A man is a man. A woman is a woman. Oh, no, a woman can be a man if she says she's a man. A man can be a woman if he says that he's a woman. This really gets to fundamental issues of credibility for our country and for our people that will make or break whether we are able to 
for one, protect our own country, for two, be relied on by our allies around the world. As the gal, the Honorable Amanda Bennett, is pointing out, in the first Cold War, Voice of America was able to encourage people who were living in repressive communist countries or people who were living in countries where there was the threat of growing threat of a communist takeover. The voice of America is only as good as the heart of America, as the soul of America. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, we know, as Christians. And even if you're not a Christian, you have to know that intuitively, it's what you might call a self-evident truth. But what's being presented by Russia and by Iran and by China is the Americans are liars. They're corrupt. They take bribes. They lie about each other. They lie about us. Who are you going to believe? And now enter AI, generative AI, which can increasingly present convincing images and sound bites of people and places and events in a way that's credible. And if we in the U.S., will have any hope of countering that. We have to understand goodness and truth on God's terms when it comes to the life of an unborn child or whether men are men and women are women, regardless of how they dress. We are making ourselves ripe for judgment. And God may just use Russia and China and Iran to judge us. Go back into the Old Testament and look at Israel and Judah and God using the Assyrians and the Babylonians to judge those two kingdoms. Look at God using even pagan nations, cruel, barbarous, idolatrous, immoral, evil peoples, and ask yourself, what's changed? Has God's character changed? No, indeed. Has his moral standard changed? No, indeed. Has the truth about God or the truth about us being made in his image, male and female, he created them, has that changed? No, it hasn't. But if we have become wise in our own eyes and our foolish hearts have been darkened, and if we've gone whoring after the gods of other nations, if we've become unholy, we should expect fully the unchangeable purpose of God will act as God has always executed his purpose as we read in his word, that he always will execute his purpose. God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So also a people, so also a nation. He always has and he always will. And so actually what is being talked about here in this Senate subcommittee is a matter of pressing national security. And might I just suggest to you that the transgenderism debate is a matter of pressing national security. Abortion is a matter of pressing national security. Socialism and social justice and critical race theory, these are matters of pressing urgency. Or what? Do we think that this administration can silence conservatives, persecute Christians here in this country, promote transgenderism at home and abroad, promote abortion at home and abroad without consequences, indefinitely, forever. What arrogance, what hubris. But for me to say that, for me to say that on this podcast, in the minds of the corporate media, social media, Democrats, is 
borderline treasonous, borderline seditious. And that, I think, is the excuse they're going to give themselves and one another when they come after us with more energy. If they are going to shore up what they see as vulnerabilities in their web marketing campaigns or their corporate media messaging campaigns or their culture war pursuits, they won't be able to stop online. They'll have to extend it into real life. But the flip side, and here I'll leave you with a positive note. I'll leave you with a happy note. If we go back to Leviticus, where we started this episode, Leviticus 21, 1 through 24, all scripture is breathed out by God, by the way. Remember that and profitable. And remember Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but wait, there's more, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And remember Leviticus 21, where God wants his priests, he wants his ministers to be holy. He wants his people to be holy for he is holy. He is the God who sanctifies us. Also, he calls us to holiness, to live like it. And if we will do that, we will have credibility. Only by doing what we're reading about in God's word here will we be able to stand firm in our faith and have credibility with those who otherwise are being led away to the slaughter. Otherwise, they're being deceived. They're sitting ducks, lambs to the slaughter. Only by our having credibility and having a good testimony, having good character, being holy to the Lord our God, only in that way Will people know when ah, that would be entirely out of character for them? I don't believe it. I don't believe they did this thing that you're accusing them of, that you you claim you have video evidence or audio evidence of. We're going to look and see. We're going to check and look for markers that this is actually a deep fake or AI generated or fake news or what have you. We don't believe that they would do this thing because it's totally out of character with what we have seen them live day in and day out. We have heard them say day in and day out, that is not who they are. That's not who we are. That's not who God has called us to be. But it's only possible if we're going back to God's word as our objective, inerrant, infallible, perfect standard of holiness to the Lord our God. But like I said, I got to leave it there. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I really do have to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. 
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.